two guests have joined us this week, which we're pretty excited about. We have a uh, lawyer, Greg Troutman, and who's going to talk to us about the latest in the FDA legal challenges. But also we have a uh, freelance writer and author, Jacob Greer. So welcome to you both. Thank you for spending some time with us. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Good to be here. So we, we have passed the critical moment of any um, Twitter spaces, which we now can actually hear each other and have the conversation. <laughs> That's so it, good. It is all downhill from here. So This is my first time doing a Twitter space, so apologies in advance for any technical difficulties that come up. Same, same here with me. It's all good. We're we're not the we're not we're not going to be the big um, story on Twitter today. You know, Twitter has a new CEO, so people will be paying close attention to that. But our topics that we're covering are incredibly important to vaping. So I, I think there, there's a couple things we we want to get over in the next hour, and I think each of you have some pretty unique perspectives on them. And so you know, definitely, Greg, on the the legal cases that have been have been mounted um, since September. Um, you know, if you could, I think your perspective on that is, is very valuable. And then I think the other big topic we want to talk about is President Biden has, if you will, brought back or renominated Robert, Dr. Robert Califf to be the FDA, um, to, to lead the agency again. And really, what does that mean for, for vaping and tobacco in general? Um, and all sorts of other topics to cover as well. But I think those two big areas is, uh, is, is what's on the agenda today. Um, Greg, could you give us, you know, you've been working directly with a lot of these filings, you know, companies are having some success in getting injunctions put in place. Um, you know, what, you know, what, but there, it's not just one court case, it's several, it's about a half dozen. Can you give us sort of an overview of where we are in the court battle? We have got about 45 cases have been filed across the country and, and how this works is under the TCA. If you were agreed from an MDO, you could either uh, file an appeal. It's what's called a petition for review in either the D.C. Circuit Court in, in Washington or in the circuit court of the circuit where your business was. And there are 12 federal appeals circuits. They're regional. We have cases pending in 10 of those 12 circuits. So it's, pre it's pretty broad. Um, a number of them are in the Ninth Circuit. A number of them are in the D.C. Circuit. There's a few in the Fifth Circuit. I think that's probably where the most of them are is the Fifth. Um, mine is in the Seventh. I think there's one in the Sixth, and there's a couple others that are in just one, one case per circuit. The only cases we don't have are in the First Circuit in Boston and the Eighth Circuit in St. Louis. Um, and, and what happens in these petitions is it's not a trial. You simply make arguments. You file briefs based upon what's in the record and each each case has its own administrative record and it's for a lot of it's it's the same stuff um and you essentially file briefs uh you argue the cases uh probably most of them will be argued orally at least some of them i, th I think will and then we'll wait for a decision uh from the court later in the spring but so the outcome of these individual companies cases this doesn't this isn't where the final say on whether or not vaping is going vaping products are going to stay on the shelf. So it's it's sort of a half step. So what what do we hope to accomplish from these different uh, different efforts? Well, it may be more of a three quarter step. Um, we we don't know what the courts are going to do, uh, especially with the Fifth Circuit, because you read the Triton stay opinion last month. They pretty much excoriated FDA. 
Um, and I don't think it would be a hard push for one or more of these courts, especially a more conservative leaning court, to hit the timeout button, the reset button, and tell FDA, you've got to go back and, and, and redo this. Um, and the reason why I say that, and this is the argument I'm making not only in my case in Chicago, but in the amicus briefs I filed so far, is that the FDA screwed this up so fundamentally that the only way to fix this and remedy this is to go back and reset new deadlines because the two-year deadline that we got with the deeming rule was predicated upon FDA's expectation of getting no more than 2,500 PMTA applications for um, where they got six and a half million. Um, two years was probably okay and sufficient for 2,500 applications. It was completely ridiculous for six and a half million. Um, so we may be more than a half a step. If we can get the court to say this was fundamentally flawed, FDA go back and um, hit the reset button, then we're, we're in the game um, further. We also don't know the mindset of what's going on now at FDA. And, I, and I've heard some, some rumblings from behind the scenes that FDA management, that is the appointed people, uh, in leadership are not on the same page as the people at CTP, Center for Tobacco Products. And the CTP people um, recognize that what's happened is, is not right. The decisions were made about how to, how to handle this from management, not from CTP. Um, and CTP would like to get something worked out. So we, we saw some of those rumblings reported a few days ago by Catherine Foley at Politico. Jacob, I, I want to ask you about that story. And it, it, it unfortunately used anonymous sources, which is not always my favorite thing to read in a news article. But it did make a reference to there being a, a discrepancy between what um, the top, top floor FDA management is looking to do and what the Center for Tobacco Products is looking to do. And you know, this this particular article looked at, OK, well, does the new does having a new director, does that does that change things? Does that set priorities? And what does that mean? Um, what, what's your take? Well, I have no uh, inside information here, but my read was uh, very similar to Greg's in that, you know, if you read anything that Mitch Zeller has written or any of his uh, speeches that he's given, uh, he clearly understands the issue. He, he gets that there's a continuum of harm uh, for different products and sees the value in uh, making sure that there is access to safer alternatives like vaping. So it, it certainly seems like uh, there must be some dissent further up in the FDA that they've only been managed to authorize you know, one product after all this time. Uh, so yeah, my my gut feeling would be that there's a uh, you know some pressure coming from above not not to authorize too many e-cigarettes. I think it's telling that they started with views uh, in an out outdated model of views. Uh, you know, it was pretty clear they weren't going to start by authorizing Juul, for example, because of the headlines and the controversy that would go along with that. And I feel like uh, this, the view solo felt like a much politically safer option to, to put on the market. Oh. I know. Go ahead. I, yeah. I, no, I remember trying the view solo in 2016, and I remember trying it and thinking, oh, this will be the last time I ever use this product. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a pretty safe one to have out in that respect. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it, things are very much up in the air right now. Uh, probably in both directions. You know, I think they, they probably don't want to make too many authorizations until it's clear who's going to be running the FDA. And uh, some of their more ambitious uh, ideas, such as 
banning menthol cigarettes or doing nicotine caps, uh, I suspect it'll also be on hold until there's uh, a real leader in place. Um, want to look back at the court cases here for a second. And if we're, you know, now that we, we have had several filed and judges have, have leaned in and, and in, in some cases just outright, you know, if you will, just in their filings openly mocked the, the FDA for how they pursued this. But, you know, if, what are the two or three or, or as, as many you think are important takeaways from these cases that, you know, the rest of the concerned vaping community needs to understand. So if I'm a member of Congress and I'm looking at, I need to know what's going on, you know, on the court side of, of these challenges, we know what, is, or if I'm, you know, in the public health community and I, I need to better understand what's going on in the courts, what are the three, three or four takeaways for that, Craig? Well, I think we're going to end up with, with a split decision here. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is the industry will win in some of the cases and the industry will probably lose in some of the cases. And it's then going to put both the industry and the FDA in the position of, do we seek review before the Supreme Court? Because that's what happens when you have a, what's called a split among the circuits. Certain circuits agree on one issue and disagree on others disagree on the issue. Uh, you went before the Supreme Court. Well, actually, we're already there. Right. It hasn't taken us long to get there. And when you talk about the Supreme Court, you mean breeze smoke. I thought uh, exactly. I mean, breeze smoke. And they cited a difference in the circuits as the basis for asking Justice Kavanaugh to issue an emergency stay. So does the FDA let it go to the Supreme Court or do they try to remedy the situation before? Is it you know, is it the ultimate embarrassment for any regulatory agency to have the other side of, of the checks and balances correct them? Do they or, or is it or do they want that fight? Well, the, the agency itself doesn't make the ultimate decision about whether the case goes to the Supreme Court. Obviously, if the industry takes it to the Supreme Court, the FDA's got no say in that. It, 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 you're there. But as far as the agency being the one to go, that's going to depend on the Solicitor General's office. And what, what the SG's office is, they are a branch of the Department of Justice. All they do is argue cases before the Supreme Court on behalf of the government. If the SG's office doesn't want to take a case up, it's not going to take a case up. It's not going. Um, that's kind of what happened in the Cetera case back uh, in 2010. Uh, FDA lost in the D.C. appeals court. By the way, Justice Kavanaugh, then Judge Kavanaugh, was on the Cetera panel that ruled in favor of the industry. Uh, and the Solicitor General's office apparently chose not to seek cert in the Supreme Court. So they're going to be the driving force, not so much the agency. So, Jacob, the other side of this is the political pressure and in what, what people, what members of Congress are saying. And the, the biggest opportunity, especially for the Senate, is going to be the renomination of Dr. Califf to be to run the FDA. Um, it looks like there are some filing issues so he, that, that those hearings will not be in December, but possibly in January. But when, when that nomination does come before Congress, what are, what are the... What are the questions that he that he needs to be confronted with? Well, I think the biggest question is is going to be uh, you know whether we can steer the conversation towards harm reduction because uh, what, what most of the senators uh, who who are on the vaping issue are going to ask about is is going to be youth uptake, uh, and so you'll have people like Mitt Romney and lots of Democrats who are going to bring up the question of Juul and youth use of e-cigarettes and probably want to get assurances from uh, the next commissioner that. 
these won't be authorized. There'll be very strict regulations in place. So uh, I think the key for us would be, you know, finding some senator who will get up there and make the case for adult smokers uh, and for harm reduction and, you know, to ask him about the continuum of, of risk with these different products and, and what they're doing to ensure that smokers have access to a safer alternative. And let me, let me chime in for a second, because before you even get to that part of it, there's even a more basic overlay is that I know Senators Cruz and, and um, um, Paul have had issues and they've said we're going to hold up nominations on pretty much everything going forward until we get certain things. It has nothing to do with tobacco, nothing to do with e-vapor. It has to do with the, the politics of what's going on in Washington right now. Uh, Califf might not even get a hearing or might not even get a vote. Um, and, you know, it's only going to take one Democrat senator to cross the aisle and say no, and he's torched. So it's a it, what we've come to know as Washington's usual logjam, but in this case, it's going to it could back up all things, including vaping. A number of things. So, it, so I, I think that one of my next question was: If he does get a vote, does he get confirmed, or is it because of people like Manchin who go back and, and just have a pre-existing record of just of opposing him? That this this is just not the, the this is the wrong nominee for this Senate. Uh, you know, I'm out in Portland, uh, far from D.C., so I'm I'm not in a position to speculate on uh, on those odds. Though I've heard, you know, from what I've read, it seems like it would be an uphill battle uh, for for reasons probably not tied to vaping, but uh, perhaps more to like opioid and uh, pharmaceutical issues. Um, but yeah, I'm not I'm not a uh, the best one to speculate on that. No, I think I think for a call to Oregon senators, Wyden and Merkley have both have already hinted that he, I think they would be behind Caleb. So I think it's definitely the the moderate Democrats that are going to be that decide the fate of, of the doctor's future. And, and you can be assured that McConnell will have the Republicans all in tow. He may have to grab McConnell, I mean, Romney by the nose and, and lead him. But I think all the Republicans will be fairly united, uh, if, especially if there's a couple Democrats that come out and say, we're not going to support his nomination, then they've got cover. So. Well, um, want to shift over while we're talking about members of Congress to the to the other side of the Capitol, to the U.S. House, to the the People's Chamber, and we were uh, we went back and looked last week at and through different um, disclosure forms at which members of Congress own tobacco stocks, and which and we there are in regular disclosure forms that every member of Congress is asked to file, and so you, you spend some time flipping through these, and one of the interesting things we came across, and wanted to get both of your takes on this was there are several, if you will, vaping prohibitionists, uh, members who have been very critical of the role vaping can play in helping smokers quit. And um, several of them own um, tobacco stocks. And, you know, it's it's not so much the knock here isn't so much that they have owned stocks and, you know, legitimately disclosed them. It's that they are being advocates uh, essentially against vaping. And, you know, is this the, the strongest you know, ground for a, uh, an elected member of Congress to be standing on? Jacob, do you have a take on that? I, I thought that was very eye-opening. <clears throat> it was very surprising when, uh, when I looked through your list and, and saw some of the people who invested in tobacco stocks. Um, I don't know if it really explains why they vote. I think their, their vote is probably based more on uh, ideology and just responding to interest groups. Uh, but it does, it does seem very hypocritical and it presumably tells you something about what they think is going to be happening with tobacco, uh, that, that they do keep investing in tobacco stocks rather than, uh, well, you know, anything else that, <laughs> that would be irrelevant to vaping. 
Um, you know, and it speaks to some broader issues about whether Congress should be trading individual stocks uh, in, in any field. Do you, just looking at uh, stocks in general in Congress, do you think that they still should be allowed to, to make investments the same way everyone else does? I'm pretty wary of that. Uh, like, I, I'm I'm not an expert on congressional ethics, but uh, there certainly seems to be a plausible case uh, that if you're in Congress, you should not be trading individual stocks. Okay. Um, you know, Jacob, I wanted to um, look at you've written on this topic, um, you know, extensively, and so we wanted to get your take on a, a couple areas. And it was going through some of your writing, and I wanted to go back and look at something you wrote for Reason earlier this year. And if it, for a second here, I'm just going to, I'll do my, my best teacher voice and I'm going to read a quote, <laughs> quote from your, your column. Uh, it appears the FDA's decision will ultimately be determined less by the actual risks of the products involved than by the question of which companies have the resources to conduct expensive scientific trials. An ironic result of this would be that the e-cigarette brands most likely to survive the winnowing are those that are the least partially owned by big tobacco companies who stand to gain massively from the anti-competitive effects of banning their smaller competitors. So, you know, so my question back to you is, is the FDA manipulating the Tobacco Control Act so they can, so they can get it stacked and so they can have an outcome that they prefer? Well, I think the FDA just wants simplicity more than anything else. Uh, you know, and for them, the, you know, a big tobacco company is going to be much easier to regulate than a small vape shop. Uh, and, and so, you know, for them, it's, you know, reducing their workload. It's being able to have a, a grip on everything and a, and a view of everything and, you know, just a few companies to deal with. Uh, so, but yeah, I think what it gets back to is the, you know, the question that everybody forgets about, you know, outside of our community really is that why was the law written the way it was? And if you go back to the origins of the Tobacco Control Act, which is what gave the FDA the authority over tobacco in the first place, you know, the, the big secret about it was that it was actually backed by Philip Morris from the very beginning. Uh, so, and this was a split among tobacco companies, but, you know, Philip Morris was the number one cigarette company in the United States. Uh, and so they definitely saw it as a calculated risk. Uh, I, basically the idea that, you know, they, they fought for, for decades in the tobacco industry to, you know, resist all regulation, maintain this laissez-faire atmosphere. Uh, and I think they smartly realized that this was not going to be tenable forever. And so that their best bet was instead to put in place a regulatory regime that they would ultimately be best positioned to navigate. And so the way that's worked out is, you know, in practice, uh, no new cigarettes or virtually no new cigarettes have been allowed since 2007, which was the grandfather clause date. So their, their cigarette market is fairly protected. Uh, no significant actions have been taken to take cigarettes off the market. Uh, so they, ha they haven't really lost anything there. Uh, so on the cigarette side, they've protected themselves from competition. And at the same time, they are taking a gamble that they'll get through on the harm reduction side as well. Uh, not clear quite how that's going to work out for them yet. You know, it's a, like we said, it's a calculated risk. Um, so Views made it through, but uh, Altria, which is the company that owns Philip Morris in the United States, you know, they're invested in Juul, which so far is not. Uh, but from their perspective, you know, they're still probably in better shape than a mom and pop vape shop that you know does not have the resources to put together the kind of studies FDA is looking for. So we were just talking about the influence stocks and investing can have over the decisions of members of Congress. But we something we, we don't talk about enough is that the Center for Tobacco Products is actually funded 
by the tobacco industry in the sense to mm -hmm. how much how much tobacco they sell. So mm -hmm. I think in the, in the last year we have data for it was you know well over six hundred million dollars in funding, which is not too shabby of a budget for a federal agency. And so you know, why would you know sense why do you you know, hurt the mouth that feeds you? In the sense that they, this is, you know, sh should we change a funding source? Should it not come from tobacco products, or should we, you know, should we, you know, is is that a, a conflict? It's an inherent conflict. I, mean, I think that's like forty percent of their annual budget comes from these user fees, uh, which of course the vape industry doesn't pay into at this point. That's coming from legacy tobacco, not not the um, newer products. And yes, it's an inherent conflict. I mean, they've got their thumb on the scale. So, Jacob, how do you see it? Is it a stack deck already in favor of big, big tobacco over vaping, or is it, is it a, a part of government that needs more scrutiny and reform? Well, it's definitely a stack deck uh, against small vaping companies. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know if it's inherently stacked against vaping per se. I think that comes more less, less from the funding than it does more from uh, just the political pressure and the fact that we've had uh, decades of just ideological assault on nicotine use. So I, I really think that's more cultural, cultural and political more than anything else. And that, that requires a you know, much longer term change of mindset of uh, trying to push back against this hostility to nicotine that is you know, may, maybe made sense when the only way to really get nicotine was through cigarettes. But now that there are so many safer alternatives, uh, I think we, we need to take a more consumer focus uh, look at, at how nicotine is used. And, uh, you know, that's not what FDA set up to do. They, they view it uh, not quite as a drug, but more in sort of that pharmaceutical mindset um, where in order to be authorized on the market, it has to be, you know, in their language, it has to be beneficial for public health, uh, which is a really high bar to clear. Um, and, and I would say that's not really how we should look at it. I, I think a better model uh, would be to look at look at it sort of like liquor or beer or wine, uh, where you have some broad guidelines about what's permitted, but uh, <laughs> among them is not, you know, what's beneficial for public health. If you want to make a new gin, you don't have to prove that it's good for the national public health. You just have to prove that it's in the general uh, risk profile of the category, which is what I think we should move for move to on nicotine. But that's not how the law is set up. And you've also written about that same topic about how you know, whose decision really is this to make? Is it is it the actual individuals to make a decision about you know what's the you know I will make this decision what's you know whether or not I'm going to order a drink at the bar or, or if I'm going to go outside and, and vape? Um, but so you, you know, at one point you said rights of tobacco and nicotine consumers to make their own decisions. So is that what's being taken away here by the FDA? And because they're trying to regulate it like a drug, essentially what they're doing is taking away people's right to choose. Yeah, and that's the thing that's been like almost completely absent from this this whole debate in public, is that this really is a significant infringement on people's liberty, uh, re regardless of whether you're a smoker or not. Um, the, this option to consume nicotine or to vape is being taken away from you, and and maybe most people don't care about that; they're not interested in doing this. You know, but there are 34 million adult smokers in the United States right now, and to tell them that they can't buy these products that are by some estimates, 90 to 95% safer than the cigarettes they're on right now, uh, that should be viewed as a very uh, destructive infringement of their liberty that, you know, you shouldn't do lightly. And we are, <laughs> we are curtailing that liberty without much consideration at all and without consulting, you know, their needs very much um, because we have this moral panic over vaping. 
And you mentioned about drug, the drug pathway. FDA has had this fixation with treating tobacco or, or, or less harmful pro- tobacco products as a drug going back for more than 25 years. If you remember, um, the whole process that got the Tobacco Control Act impetus going was in the mid-1990s when FDA wanted to regulate tobacco. Congress never gave them authority. They said, we don't care. We're going to adopt a regulation where they treated it as a drug and cigarettes as drug delivery devices. And the Supreme Court unanimously said, no, you can't do that. Fast forward, when the vape industry first came along and the first vape products started to come in, what did FDA try to do again? Treat them as drug delivery devices. And what happened? They lost a second time. And they just, FDA will not give up that ghost that these products are drugs. So we're always looking for the, what are the, the avenues, you know, that, w- that can actually force the FDA to change. And, you know, we talk a lot about the first step being recognizing the role vaping can, a positive role vaping can play for cigarettes. But there, there seems to be two ways, two really big levers of influence. And one is Congress changing the Tobacco Control Act which is no easy lift. And the other one is the, that the federal courts make them, make them actually you know, you know, give them a process that they have to use. Is, is that a likely outcome, Greg, that can come out of the courts that they say, this is how you're going to be handling vaping going forward? No, the court. I don't think the court is going to micromanage how FDA does this. What I think the courts can do, and this is one of the arguments I'm making in my case, and I think some of the other cases are sort of tangentially touching on this, is the FDA, the TCA, well, Congress when they adopted the TCA and FDA when it adopted its rules and its guidance, it never really gave us guidelines of what it expected. And for instance, we have to show risks and benefits and certain likelihoods under the, under the TCA. There's no metrics there to tell us you know, how likely is likely. Uh, FDA wants us to show that we're... Um, uh, good at promoting smoking cessation. Well, how many smokers do we have to convert? They haven't told us that. Is one enough? Does that have to be a hundred, a thousand? You know, what's, what's the number? I think the court will do is tell FDA, you've got to go back to the drawing board and spell all this out. And I, th- and I think what happened here, and, and I, I, this is an honest uh, evaluation of what I think happened, is FDA grossly underestimated the size and scope of this industry. As I talked about earlier, um, they predicated everything upon their expectations, which were extremely, I mean, exponentially off what reality was. And because of that, they got caught, so to speak, with their pants down. They didn't have time to do all the internal rulemaking that was needed uh, to make this work. And they've tried to adjust on the fly and they've shortcut a lot of issues, a lot of things. They've really screwed this up. And I think it's going to take a reset to go back to the drawing board and, and redo many of these things to have anything that uh, has a semblance that it's even functional. So, Jacob, who is the political, what is the political coalition that would support such a reset? You know, as we talked about, um, Greg just pointed out there's a growing industry that the FTA didn't really scope out. This is how big it is. This is how much, how many people it's actually impacting. So, you know, if there, if it's that much of a growing industry, there's a political coalition behind that. You know, is there a group out there that can be put together that, that pushes Congress or pushes the FDA to, to actually make the reset as Greg's talking about? 
Well, I think it's going to be tough. And, and part of it is that, you know, we talk about the vaping industry, but, you know, this is really two, at least two distinct, se distinct sectors where one is, you know, the, the big side of the industry that's extremely well-funded and in most cases uh, owned at whole or, or in part by existing tobacco companies. And then the other part is the uh, sort of the open system you know, ecosphere of small shops and, you know, independent people making uh, different e-liquids and components. And they don't have the same interest. You know, the, the, the big vape side is, is, you know, they don't have the, the same interest in making it easier, easier to get products through that the smaller side does. And so I think it's going to be very hard to politically organize uh, on behalf of the smaller producers. And then in Congress, it's just, you know, a really challenging issue because of all the, the moral panic around nicotine and vaping. Uh, where, you know, you might normally look to uh, Republicans to, to be anti-regulation and pro-small business. Uh, but, you know, the, on this issue, you know, there's tons of exceptions even to that. You know, one of the most prominent anti-vaping people in Congress is Mitt Romney, uh, who under most, under most uh, circumstances you might think would be uh, on the small business side here. So, yeah, it's tough to find uh, the coalition. I think one hope might, I mean, a distant hope, I don't think it's going to happen, uh, but would one hope would be to get uh, some of the more drug friendly and and here I mean like recreational drug friendly uh, people in Congress like some of our Oregon uh, Congress people to maybe uh, rethink nicotine a little bit. But that's that's an uphill battle given the the uh, long term trend uh, among Democrats to be anti tobacco in all forms. And maybe maybe having this in the lap of Congress is not something that we ultimately want. Um, maybe we have to knock FDA down a little bit, uh, bloody their nose a little bit, and then see if we can work a deal with FDA. I think it'd be easier to deal with CTP than it would be to deal with Congress. So is it a matter of resources on CTP side? Do, like, do they need more people and funding, or is it just they need better direction and organization? They just need a better mission statement that says, this is what we're going to do. These are the rules that we have. You know, what, what are they missing? Well, I mean, I, my take on it would be that they just have the completely wrong approach right now, which is where ev pretty much every manufacturer and every application is expected to start from scratch. And, you know, mm -hmm. they want things they want things like uh, randomized control trials for like every individual vaping product, which is, is not remotely realistic. Uh, and so what I think that they should do is instead offer guidelines that they are going to by default uh, basically allow unless there's some reason to be worried about them. So like, and, and here I'm not the expert on what these should be exactly, but like some range of flavors, some range of nicotine concentrations, some basic device standards, where if you're a small manufacturer and you can say that you're within those parameters, then you don't have to have a randomized control trial. You can just point to the substantial body of evidence, uh, you know, taken from social sciences showing that these products are effective. Well, and also too, if you remember, the, the Demian rule came about. That was It was introduced, I think, in April of 2014. Well, you move forward to May of 2016. There was a rush to get this Demian rule out and published while Obama was still in office. Because if there was a change of administration, this might not have ever have come out under Trump. Um, we might be getting the Demian rule now as opposed to five years or six years ago. I think this whole process was rushed to get it out for political expediency. I think FDA is going to have to sit back, recalculate and recalibrate and take its time to get this done. The problem is FDA is under tremendous political pressure 
from members of Congress and from the outside anti-tobacco organizations to do something quickly. And when you try to do something quickly and rush stuff in, in policymaking, you usually get a mess. And we've got an uber mess. So we're looking at the next you know, couple of weeks and a couple of months. So maybe January we have a, a, we have hearings on an FDA nominee, probably not a final vote until senators can strike some sort of deal to move all Biden nominees forward, not just ones pertaining to health and FDA. And then, Greg, you also made reference to you know, maybe springtime court cases um, will start to have um, actual resolution and maybe get more direction from there. Um, you know, is that sort of the timeline you're looking at for the next six months? Those are those two milestones. I, th- I think we will start getting dis- decisions in the f- the five cases, and I'm talking about my case in Chicago and the four pending cases that already have got uh, briefs filed. Um, I think we'll get decisions probably sometime in the spring, April, May, in the, maybe late March in those cases, and it's going to give us some some focus on where we're going forward. I think that will also be a big driver for the other cases downstream that they don't have briefing schedules yet. Um, it might it might cause the FDA to that may be what causes the recalibration is a few losses, um, and, and they've got really no choice because that creates then a real quagmire for us. Is let's say we win these cases or or a bulk of these cases, what then? Where do we go then? This industry needs to have a concerted plan, uh, especially the people on the open system side, of how we're going to respond if we get victories. What's that going to mean for the rest of the industry? And how do we go to the FDA and try to get something worked out? We need to be thinking about those things now, not six months down the road if we've won. We need to have a plan in place, presuming we're going to win. And if we do win, then here's what we do. And it also is, you know, 2020, as we guess, it's the first time I've said it out loud, but 2022 is right around the corner, and that is an election year, and it's going to be an incredibly important one for President Biden and the Democrats. Does this, is this an opportunity to expand on success from the 2020 election when, in vaping and voting and try to make this an issue for as many members of Congress who are seeking re-election? Absolutely. Jacob? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, if the organization is in place, you know, it's, um, you know, we saw sort of rare success with that when uh, in the response to Evilly, uh there was pressure on on Trump not to uh, piss off the vaping community too much, worried that it might swing swing elections. Um, it might be harder now. I like I don't know how much. Uh, how dispirited the vape shop and like vaping people are, whether there's going to be the energy left to, to mount that kind of challenge again. And of course it's harder uh, when you've got, you know, more than 400 candidates than when you've, you know, focused on, you know, just the president. Uh, the potential's there, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you get there. Well, to make it. you know, when we did the, we vape, we vote, obviously we had the big rally, but you know, there were a number of times that Trump would go out on the campaign uh, in, in tw- late 2019, every place he went for a campaign stop, we were there. We knew where he was going to be. We had the signs uh, and, and the banners drop shipped. We had people on the ground organized. What we did the week that he was in Mar-a-Lago at the start of 2020 was just phenomenal. Um, when the White House press corps was tweeting about these activists that were out there and um, 
you all saw the probably saw the pictures in the video of, of an entire block of people holding we vape we vote signs that we got his we got his daily schedule and we knew when he was going to be going and coming from the golf course every day every time he went to um, whatever city around the country we had people there that didn't take a lot of organization that was a very grassroots effort now can we go after all 435 members of congress and all the third of the senators that are up no can we target maybe 10 or 15 or 20 of the congressmen? Absolutely. That would not be a very difficult thing to do um, because you know that they're going to be at any public event uh, during that campaign season. They are out um, shaking hands, passing out stickers, doing whatever. It, you go any, any festival, any fair, anything out. We need to have our people there. We need to be and- following those people. You know, my hunch on it is the enthusiasm is there. I think the you know behind, especially in the small vape shop, this is this is an entire industry that has been founded and moved forward by a group of people who really believe in their product because they've seen it improve their lives. And they, you know, that's that's not something you not every voter you know or person who looks at a ballot box is that motivated. So I, my hunch is the enthusiasm it can definitely be there. Um, wanted to ch- shift topics to a little bit to a standing. Um, a standing question that, that we look at each week, and, and it's a, we t- take a look back at what kind of media coverage in general vaping is receiving, um, both by uh, trade publications and by the mainstream press. And you know, each week we're we're, we're always always finding too many examples of um, coverage being one-sided, and we, we always we always point to Matt Myers, like tobacco-free kids, as being the, the top quote in a story. And in the, we mentioned the Politico story from, from that published a few days ago. He made it as the second quote. So like we are improving. And but so this week I wanted to look a little bit closer at some coverage that New York Times Magazine um, has put together. And you know I, I know both of you had a chance to, to look at this. Uh, but the, the New York Times Magazine, so the, the insert that comes in the Sunday paper for, for the old school folks, um, it ran, runs a headline is vaping is risky. Why is the FDA authorizing e-cigarettes? And, you know, I, I get the idea of, of making your headlines um, in, you know, incitable so people will click on it and read your story. But in general, you know, are reporters giving the vaping side, the pro-vaping side of the argument a fair shake? You know, in general, I, I think reporting on vaping is absolutely terrible. <laughs> and I've called out many examples of this. Uh, in the case of the New York Times one, you know, I do think it's, it's worth pointing out. Uh, that reporters generally don't write their own headlines. And, and a lot of the, I don't know exactly how the New York Times works, but, uh, and, but speaking as a writer myself, I know sometimes I don't know what the headline on my piece is going to be until it comes out, and sometimes I'm unpleasantly surprised. Um, so I think the, uh, the article was much better than the headline in this case, and especially when you compare that story to the New York Times past vaping coverage, which has been consistently alarmist and really quite terrible compared to the newspaper's uh, general output. Um, I think it's a a big improvement. It was a much more balanced piece than I've normally seen in the New York Times. And so overall, while I would would have certainly chosen a different headline and framed a few things differently in the story, I thought it was uh, a promising sign. Well, one of the pieces or points that is made in in this article that we routinely take objection to was the citing of the JAMA network study. Which is talking about um, you know how many people from this study were able to quit cold turkey, and they say so just flat out one day I'm gonna I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna quit smoking, and they have that number as high as fifty percent, and I think 
realistically, if you look across at other studies that have been done, that number is actually closer to 5%. But the New York Times treats it as it's accurate. And do you think that's fair to the, to the, the, the reader, to the news consumer who's actually trying to learn something by you know, digging in deep into the, the inserts of their times? You know, I haven't uh, had a chance to read through that whole study yet, so I'm going to have to defer on that one. One, one. one point is, you know, public perception of this industry, I think, is probably different today than it would have been two years ago. I think two years ago, there's a lot of people would have seen a headline, and if you ask the man on the street, their perception about the vapor industry would not have been positive because people two years ago would probably have given the FDA more benefit of the doubt than they will today, two years into COVID. There's a lot of people who are skeptical of FDA and CDC now that would not have been two years ago. Yeah, and I think, you know, the the example of Evilly was actually a great, uh, it should have been a wake-up call. Because uh, you, you've seen a lot of people writing now with response to COVID, especially about in reference to the CDC, it was just like shock of like, how could they have messed up the beginning of this pandemic so badly? <laughs> and I right. think that's uh, kind of amusing to anyone who was aware of the, uh, of how things played out with the uh, vape lung scare in 2019. Uh, it was not surprising at all that they could have actually messed up this badly. So give us a little bit of an overview of what, what happened there. And because that actually leads us into our second example of, of, the, of our media lapdog of the week. It's actually from a CBS affiliate in Greensboro, North Carolina, um, can, you know, repeated you know, what has been disproven by everybody, what happened there. Yeah, I mean, so the, basically what happened was um, in 2019, there was a, a wave of uh, really quite gruesome lung injuries. I think it was uh, about more than 2,000 cases and around 60 fatalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that were linked to inhaling vapor. Uh, The problem was there was a lot of ambiguity about what people were vaping, uh, and the media pretty much just initially latched onto the idea that it was nicotine vapes because those are the most visible. Uh, And the CDC, I think, sort of opportunistically went along with this, even though there was a lack of evidence uh, tying it to e-cigarettes. Then, as as it turned out, uh, by August of 2019, uh, the true source was actually really clear, but the, if you wanted good information, you weren't getting it from the CDC. You were getting it from Leafly, mostly, which is an online cannabis magazine, uh, which did by far the best reporting on the topic and figured out that it was uh, additives used to essentially thicken uh, mostly black market THC cartridges. And, and, and so this became clear and it was, you know, became even more clear over time. Uh, but the damage was done. Uh, the CDC had blamed e-cigarettes and uh, kept vaping in the name of the disease, evilly. Uh, and, and so that had long-term impact. You can tell from public opinion surveys uh, that people's perception of the risk of vaping uh, went up uh, dramatically during this news cycle. And while they did recalibrate a little bit afterwards, they never went back down to where they were before. Uh, and so this greatly contributed to the, uh, the moral panic over vaping and convince people that it's as bad, maybe even worse for you than cigarettes. And, and actually, to, to expound on that, there is at least some evidence that the CDC sat on the truth and hid the truth for upwards of six months. Um, there is a FOIA document that has been circulated around uh, of a um, notes of a conference call, and I think it was September of 2019, 
between CDC officials and state health officials in states where marijuana was legal. And these health, state health officials were begging the CDC to run with the narrative that it's the mar- legal marijuana, illegal marijuana products and not the nicotine vapor products. And the CDC sat on that and did not change its tune until February of 2020. So we're looking at five to six months. They said and let people continue to get sick and die. So is it is there a responsibility to try to correct this story? Because it does continue to pop up. I, I don't think this the CBS affiliate in North Carolina is that much you know, at fault as much as the CDC is in not being as proactive or in, with their outreach to reporters in correcting the story. Does there, is there, the CDC have some responsibility in making sure that the right information is getting to people? Yeah, I mean, they absolutely do. And, and the challenge that, that we face is that uh, we're, once this was hypothesized and became the story that this could have this vaping disease is out there and it's mostly marijuana, but oh, maybe it's some nicotine vaping too, is then you're in the awkward position of, you know, how do you prove this negative? You know, because there's, there's this fraction of cases where, you know, the, the person says they didn't have any cannabis, didn't test positive for cannabis, uh, but they've also never conclusively tied any of these diseases to nicotine vaping. And, and there's not really a logical reason to think that they would be caused by it. Because uh, it's a, just a totally different uh, solution that you use, uh, but it, but it's much harder. It, it's much harder to pr- to prove the claim that nic- that you know no case was ever caused by nicotine vaping uh, than it is to say that you know this was never tied to it. So there's that lingering uncertainty uh, that people can take advantage of to try to still cast a shadow on on nicotine vaping, even though there's really no evidence that it was behind any of this. Okay. Gentlemen, thank you for your, your time today. We're uh, coming towards the end of our program, but before we, uh, we depart, I just wanted to see what is next for both of you. I know, um, Greg, you, you're still in the middle of a, of a pretty intense you know, legal battle I know, it, that you've got coming up, um, but I wanted to ask each of you, what, what projects are you working on now and what's next, um, next for you? Well, right now I'm working on my uh, petitioner's brief for the Seventh Circuit, um, I have just finished up in, I mean, just the month of, of, of uh, November, I filed four amicus briefs in four of the different cases. So it's been a very busy time. Um, I imagine I'm going to be doing a lot of writing and researching and reading between now and the end of the year and early into next year. Um, and then just waiting for these cases to come out. Okay. And if folks want to follow along, you're vape law guy on Twitter. That's correct. Okay. And, Jacob, same to you. What is what is next for you? What are you working on, and where can people go to find more of your writing? Cool. Well, uh, actually, just finished, or I'm finishing today, the uh, the final draft of a uh, very long piece on tobacco uh, control that I I think listeners here will find interesting. Uh, I don't want to say too much about it yet, but I can tell you to keep an eye out. Uh, Cato Institute has a new publication coming out called Free Society. Okay. Uh, so that'll be out uh, this spring. So keep an eye out for that. I think it's going to be a great publication, and I'm excited about who we have lined up and excited to be a part of it. Uh, so that'll be my next uh, big publication as far as uh, anything related to tobacco uh, comes. I'm, re- I'm working on some other writing projects on uh, fun things like uh, cocktails and stuff, but uh, <laughs> that's not quite as relevant here. I'll have a new, I'll have a new book about, uh, about that coming out next year as well. Um, but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on Twitter, at uh, Jacob Greer, uh, G-R-I-E-R. Um, yeah, and if people are interested in this, I, I will take the opportunity to plug my book 
the rediscovery of tobacco, which is available on Amazon and, and other websites. Excellent. We always love a good book plug. We never, never turn <laughs> them down. Well, gentlemen, thank you both for your time today and, and helping, uh, helping you know, shaping vaping in, in our weekly conversation. We appreciate your thoughts. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks for having us on. This is great. 